Welcome to Abuelas en Acción, a podcast for our common good. I'm Marie Dahlstrom, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Rosemary Celaya Alston. This week, my family and I celebrate the 100th birthday of mi mamá, Rosita Merchan Sorenby. Rosita is reaching this amazing milestone of 100 years old, but is forever young in spirit. She arrived in the United States as a young immigrant from Ecuador in her early 20s, speaking no English, I would add. A month later, she met and married my father, Sven Sorenby, (laughs) a young immigrant from Sweden, and in fact, the the um, we talk about in our family how she did not know how to pronounce my father's name Sven when mm-hmm. she married him. They together raised my brother Thomas and myself in Southern California. Those years years were not easy as a multicultural brown and white family in white and politically conservative Orange County, California. In fact. Orange County was the birthplace of a white supremacist organization, the John Birch Society. However, Rosie, as many know her, is a barrier buster. My dear friend Rosemary uses that term all the time. And Rosita continues to be a barrier buster. There is not anything that she can't do. We, her children, her grandchildren, and great-grandchildren are all grateful to Grandma Rosie for her determination, her strength, outspokenness, faith, her cooking, and belief in each and every member of her familia. This is her legacy to our family. Feliz cumpleaños, Mama. Happy birthday, Grandma Rosie. Dr. Rosemary and I are so lucky to have the opportunity to interview so many amazing women on our podcast. Women who inspire us, and today is no exception. Today, it is our honor to talk with Dr. Ruth Sambrana, whose research about Latinos guided the founding of our sister organization, Familias en Acción, in Portland, Oregon. We only recently met Dr. Zambrana, but feel as though we have known her for many years through her influential research and writings. In fact, I can remember very clearly her first book that I bought, and it was um, very well read and uh, referenced many, many times during the founding of Familias. Her work has enabled familias and so many organizations, both nonprofit, public, and political across the United States to better understand systemic and political reasons why health, economic, social, and racial disparities have historically existed for Latinos and continue to exist today in 2021. Ruth Sambrana is professor in the Department of Women's Studies, director of the Consortium on Race, Gender, and Ethnicity, and adjunct professor of family medicine at the University of Maryland, Baltimore School of Medicine. Dr. Sambrana's scholarship applies a critical 
intersectional lens to structural inequality and racial, Hispanic ethnicity and gender disparities in population health and higher education trajectories. She has published extensively and serves on many social science and public health journal editorial boards. Welcome, Ruth. It is such a privilege to have you join us today. Thank you for being with us. So, Ruth, please share with us a defining moment in your life. Okay, well, let me, good morning, buenos dias. Buenos dias. Buenos dias, Ruth. And welcome to the podcast, esteemed listeners, guests, y las familias de la comunidad. A special expression of gratitude to Drs. Marie Dahlstrom and Rosemary Celaya Alston for remembering me and honoring me with this invitation and for creating a defining moment in my life. Today, I will share with you my findings and thoughts on equity in Latino families, students, and professors. I want to start out with a quote that I recently heard an African-American academic state, because it so defines also what I have felt throughout my professional life. She said, if you are not angry, you are not paying attention. And that is true. So when we speak about defining moment, let me start by saying that we all have universal personal defining moments. I will not linger on them right now, such as the birth of our children, which I have two beautiful children who I was able to teach and inculcate in their hearts and souls, anti-racist thought and anti-racist action and defending those who are the least advantaged in our societies. Their college graduations were a defining moment for me and the recognition awards that I have received from my hard work. Yet, as an academic, few of us know what, if and how, our years of painstaking scholarly hard work has mattered to others, especially for those of us who do equity and social justice work. So I want to briefly mention three defining moments, starting with the most recent. So dear colleagues, Marie and Rosemary, I want to say your call and announcement that my first book on understanding Latino families in 1995 had guided some of your work was a critical defining moment in my life. There have been many, and it is not surprising that a young working class Puerto Rican girl from Queens has moved up a ladder with many risks and has influenced the lives of others. I realized how steep and significant that climb has been just a few weeks ago when I was asked to research Latina research scientists and in honoring Dr. Helen Rodriguez Trias. In searching for all our renowned scholars, I found none on the internet. 
none on the internet, except if I knew them by name. And I learned that Latinas represent a mere 1% of all full professors in 2020 out of 4,000 plus universities in the United States. That means that almost 30 years ago in 1993, when I became a full professor, there must have been 0.0001% of something that we existed, which then speaks to the poor and inadequate scholarship on Latinos and Latinas. The second uh, defining moment was last summer when I was awarded the title Distinguished University Professor at the University of Maryland. It was a very moving moment to me because I felt that academically my work finally was recognized as a pioneer and a leader in issues of structural racism and intersectionality of race, ethnicity, class and place, community were finally acknowledged. And the third defining moments have been, these are more regular, which of course I need to keep my fire fueled, has been touching the lives of the next generation of Latino and African-American scholars. I am touched by titles of former, that former mentees give themselves. My UCLA experience, they call themselves Daughters of the West and we're still in touch. Sons of the Academy are all those men whom I've touched in terms of their careers. And then there are those who call themselves my followers. My work and my commitments aim to open doors for others, just like doors were opened up for me. I was a diamond in the rough. And these opening of doors, I try particularly to open doors for those whom others don't open doors for. And these include the next generation of Mexican origin, Puerto Rican, disadvantaged Latinos, Native Americans, and African-American scholars. Ruth, so, yes. Thank you so much for sharing about your defining moments and the honor of us being one of those defining moments because I, I want to share with our listeners, this was such a defining moment for us in the foundation of this amazing organization. It started and it's still in the basement of Augustana Lutheran Church in Portland, Oregon. And Rosemary was there too. We knew about need in the community and yet we did not know what the research was because in those days, we didn't, we, um, we went to college and we got our degrees, but very little for those of us who were Latina and Brown uh, just knew that this was an academia didn't really reflect us. So we graduated without knowing a lot about our communities. And so many of us like Rosemary, we were drawn to serve. We went with our degrees in hand to serve the community, but and we knew about such need. And in particular, back in those days, we started as a domestic and sexual violence organization and evolved into an overall health promotion organization. And to have 
found your book and you're going to talk in a minute um, about um, what uh, what uh, has changed and what has not changed uh, since you wrote your book, Understanding Latino Families. It changed my life, Ruth. And I remember crying as I read your book because it named what I knew and felt but couldn't give voice to because there wasn't the research as we have more of it now, we don't have enough, but we had you back then. Rosemary, did you have any thoughts on that? I totally agree with you, Marie. Um, I wish I would have known you back in the day in terms of schools, because I would have been one of those daughters of the West with you, Ruth. <laughs> Um, I, I just don't think we were led in a direction that, that demonstrated that there were other shoulders we could have leaned on. Mm. And so we were um, in the dark trying to move mm-hmm. um, a different policies and different ways of knowing of our communities that they, you know, were at the table. And um, we became a little bit... Um, radical I would say angry (laughs) angry we were angry and we just you know at that point um in our lives we were um so infuriated at the way money was given out and Mm -hmm. the unequity of those who spoke louder got more Mm -hmm. and as a community you know we we weren't raised that way we were raised respectfully, and so we just didn't know. So your literature put a name and a face to why we're doing what we're doing, and we thank you. Mm, you're welcome. So talk to us, Ruth, about your book, uh, Understanding Latino Families, Scholarship, Policy, and Practice. It was published in 1995, and as we've been sharing, was very timely for Familias en Acción. So what has changed since you began your research, and uh, what has not changed? I realize it's a complicated question, um, but important for our listeners to understand understand a little bit about the history about the research that you've been doing. Thank you. Well, I have to say all your questions were very complicated (laughs) and very deep in so many ways. I think that at this age, once you've been through a career of both success, failure, um, because there's always some failure, um, that you really do think about things more intensely because you have all these years to think about. So first I wanna say, I think some things have changed and much has remained the same. But there is a national shifting of understanding about why people are poor or unable to attain upward mobility that I hope will be strong enough to sustain a, a momentum for change. Now I'm not against speaking about progress and change, but I am opposed to speaking about the illusion of progress, which tends to be part of the American discourse. So briefly, the book in 1995 was funded by the Social Science Research Council, and they approached um, Professor Maxine Bakazin, who is a leading family socio- Chicana family sociologist, 
and told us, could we pull together what we know about Latino families? They gave us $10,000, which in those days, even those days was nothing. So we used that money and we started looking. There were big gaps in knowledge about Latinos for two reasons. One is we didn't have, as both of you have commented, anyone to produce that knowledge in academia. Um, there were very, very few. And the second big gap was that the literature did not represent our struggles, nor our reality, nor our experiences. So we searched high and low and found Latino scholars who were working on families. Sadly for us, the literature at that time was filled with myths and stereotypes about how our culture ruined or was a barrier to our success. So it was an individual blame. It was about us. It wasn't about them, which is institutional culture. It borrowed from a deficit cultural model and failed to account for what was obvious then but what has been recently named structural racism. And that was the issue, not our culture. We can call this institutional culture. I wanna also comment for these reasons, I do not include the word culture as a defining characteristic in my work on Latinos. Because what does culture have to do with our poverty? What does culture have to do with our low educational levels? What does culture have to do with our employment in the service sector? Latinos want to succeed just like everybody else. We want to be in a nice house. We want to be in a good school. You know, we want to have a nice car. So it is not our culture that keeps us down. It is institutional culture that keeps us down. So I went back. So the question was then, how do we turn this around? We thought that by writing this book, we would begin to put forth what we know and what we don't know. It was interesting, this request made me go back to reading the book this past weekend. And I noted that I had used the word equity. That's almost, mm. what, 30 years ago? In my dedication. And that I had also, and many of our authors had talked about the importance of community or place, housing, food, all as important factors. And these are now called social determinants. And social determinants was central to the basic assumptions of the book. So in so many ways, um, I hope that my colleague and I will write a paper that speaks to how um, Latino and African-American scholars have really laid the foundation. It took us 50 years post-civil rights for the understanding that it's in the institutional culture or structural racism, not group culture, that is the major factor in creating disadvantaged communities. So I wrote, it, I wrote the following sentence, I was shocked. The society that espouses equality but delivers in inequity. And that statement is as true today as it was 30 or 40 years ago. So the good news is, the progress is that we are there, that that statement has been recognized. So I want to say 15 years later, I was asked to teach a course on Latino families at the University of Maryland. In preparing the course, I was deeply disappointed 
that the literature had not changed very much on Latinos, that we're still talking about cultural deficits. I really did not like at all how we were being studied as Latinos. So I embarked on my second book. And the second book is called, can you remember the title? Latinos in American Society. And I do a critical analysis of the way that we are studied and suggest other ways for us to be studied. The questions were the same. What do we know about Latino families? How have we been studied and what has changed? So what has changed? We have populations in the US now from over 22 countries, including Portuguese speaking peoples and any country that speaks Spanish. We have several new generations of scholars who are persisting and challenging the myths that surround Latinos as a category and the specific stereotypes that continue to haunt the literature around historically underrepresented groups, specifically Mexican origin and Puerto Ricans, who are still considered intellectually inferior and not fit. We have a large field of immigrant journeys, barriers and success stories, including a significant body of work on undocumented dreamers. We have a strong consciousness of Afro-Latinidad with the influx of Dominicans, Colombians, and, and also Puerto Ricans raising their voice about the issues of color and discrimination. We have another strand, intellectual strand of scholarship that addresses mixed race and finally understanding the largesse of the category other that was mainly observed among Puerto Ricans. We have much higher rates of intermarriage between whites and Latinos mainly Cubans and South Americans, which changes the, the categories of Latinidad. We have increased our educational levels. So that's good news. Um, Mexican-Americans are at 12%, Puerto Ricans at 19%, but immigrants between 25 to 35% of foreign born immigrants from Cuba, Spain, Venezuela, and Argentina are college graduates. So South American immigrants tend to be two to three times more educated than historically underrepresented immigrants. And we have some visible political representation, Javier Becerra, uh, Alexandro Ocasio-Cortez, we have the Roy Balson in Los Angeles, but we also have strong political divides in our community which deeply impact our well-being, not only currently, but I believe in the future. One example is the lack of expansion of the state child insurance program in Texas. The other big concern in what has changed is that there is no unifying political agenda of economic or social equity. One of the unifying forces that helped us to move forward with assertive agendas was the post-civil rights movement. When we had the Brown Berets, we had the, the Young Lords, the Black Panthers, we had all these active political groups, particularly college students, who were a dynamic force 
and change because they had a unified agenda, which was clear, which was an economic, socioeconomic agenda, a discrimination agenda, an unequal treatment agenda. There is no such unifying agenda at this point, which is very concerning and that has changed. And I think I would say the other thing that has changed is this high level of scholarship and advocacy on immigration. Although Pew studies and all the data show that the agenda, that the highest areas of concern for Latinos are economic, employment, and health. So it is a very concerning that what Latinos say, and yet the public discourse and the public agenda out there do not match. So what has not changed? So all those things I think from my perspective, politically, economically, socially have changed. Scholarly, the little bit of scholarship we have tends to be an immigration overshadows other scholarship. What has not changed is that Mexican origin and Puerto Rican are still the largest proportion of Latinos and still have the largest percent of poverty and disadvantage. And they are followed by Salvadorans and Guatemalans who also have um, high indicators of disadvantage. So about one quarter to one third of Latinos are poor and live in highly segregated communities within 10 states. And I think the scholarship persists and a cultural approach and an acculturation approach, which is quite maddening as Mexican-Americans, the majority of Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans have been in the US intergenerationally. And there still continues to be an underlying theme that culture is the cause of adverse outcomes rather than an examination of poverty, class and social determinants. Um, and there are stark differences, what has not changed, that there are stark differences between and within groups by socioeconomic status and where you were born. So those are the areas that I think in thinking about this have changed and have not changed. It's a wonderful opportunity for our listeners and those who will be coming into the podcast to hear this interview, Ruth, of the historical nature of how we have pitted um, one another in terms of our understanding of really what's at stake here mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the no unifying agenda, just something so basic as that, that we're still grappling on mm -hmm. not having that um, and not being unified in unification as mm -hmm. a community and moving that forward. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. I, I want to move into some of your thoughts regarding um, the COVID pandemic mm -hmm. and has had a devastating impact on so many Latino families. What do you see as a priority policy for health and economic equity for Latinos and other communities of color who have been disproportionately impacted by this, this pandemic? I think you've alluded to it already to some extent, 
would we'd like to hear some more of your thoughts? Well, let me, uh, yes. So thank you for this question. I did um, present to the American Medical Association my thoughts around structural racism. But what I wanna say here is that the COVID pandemic, like the economic recession of 2006, had a devastating impact on Latinos and African-Americans on their economic assets, employment possibilities. And I think my first thought was, why is it that we are so surprised? I think the US as a whole needs to stop being surprised that those groups who work at unfair and non-equitable wages and have an unstable economic life due to these low wages and due to living in crowded spaces and due to living, working in jobs that do not provide benefits, that any crises, national crises will disproportionately impact them. So first of all, we have to stop being surprised. So then, again, we look at the why and why we have to stop being surprised. Because when you're poor and when you're not a high school graduate, have limited education, and when 20 to 50 percent of our population is without health insurance at any one point in time, um, and when they were the most likely to lose their jobs because they could not work at home, did not have a computer, did not have an office, why are we surprised? I need to say that because I think it's really important that we begin to attend to the instability of poor people in this country, particularly racial and ethnic, particularly Latino people. So when we think of the Latino population, I mean, something like 60 to 70% work in the service sector. They are always gonna be the ones who are most deeply affected. When we think of local farm workers and agricultural workers who are experiencing adverse conditions, again, crowding, um, lack of protective gear, um, lack of health benefits, lack of in, uh, insurance, any type, lack of retirement, um, exposure to chemicals, to carcinogenic sprays and chemicals. When we think of people in urban areas in Los Angeles, we are concentrating Los Angeles, Chicago, um, Miami, New York, and parts of Texas in public housing. So that's why the COVID pandemic had such a devastating effect. So for Latinos, equity has not changed. The inequitable circumstances that continue to adversely affect our lives, not only in the pandemics, not only in economic recession, but every day are still there and become worsened when we have a crisis. So I thought it was also interesting to look at how research resources were distributed because inequity is also about that. And we are always the last to get those resources. So who obtained business loans? 
what types of convoluted bureaucracies were involved in getting loans to people? I know a number of Latinos um, who could not get business loans. And I know a couple of upper middle class, wealthy psychologists, for example, who got business loans and who still had their practices. How did banks handle mortgage delays and housing lend how did housing landlords handle late payments? We have to ask ourselves, who got this additional unemployment? What types of, I know people who worked in very good jobs became unemployed, they were getting $800 a week. Then we have individuals who are working in low-level jobs who are getting $200 a week. They couldn't do it. So what about the domestic workers where the wealthy ran off to summer homes? They lost their jobs. Nobody paid that. So I think the devastation is part of the instability of a significant portion of um, working class and poor people in this country. And Latinos are, have the highest rate of working class and low income peoples. I so, love the way you um, phrased those questions as basic as they are in terms of who got what. Yes. Um, yes. Really the answer or those who will answer that will be an astonishment probably to many of us because you just gave an example of that. And, yeah. you know, I know small businesses here in, in Arizona that they just didn't even know step one on how to fill out the application. Yeah. Process. And, the and process. Right. And instead of having people help or get on this line and it would boot you out and all of the frustration that went with that, some of those businesses said, ¿Y for what? For what? And you need this and you need that. And you, and so there lies also the, the inability to put things in place where resources are somewhat fair across the board. So exactly. thank you for laying that out. Your book, Ruth, on toxic- Wait a minute, let me just say something, Rose. Sure, go for it. So I have the equity measures. <laughs> so the equity it. measures, I mean, it's so obvious. The government can directly pay landlords for rent. That would have been good. The landlords would have benefited. The people would have benefited. It would have been less costly. They could have set up special lines for people. You couldn't reach a small business. Nobody could reach small business. What was that about? Right. They could have sent mobile vaccine units into low-income areas to vaccinate frontline workers. You didn't need ID. You know, you work someplace, send the mobile. I mean, housing projects are pretty, you know, small area in many ways where you could do a vaccine mobile unit. They could have had food banks in the area. So some of them here in the upper middle class communities like here, they had schools the schools you can, they had tables outside the schools or in the halls and people could go get their lunches, their dinners, they can go get food. I mean, there were all types of things, but dealing with landlords and dealing with banks, they could have paid the banks a couple of mortgage payments. I mean, there's no reason when they couldn't have done that. 
because many of the refinancing of the mortgage, essentially they put those payments when they could, because many banks would not do it. Banks were not required to do anything. So a lot of people are losing their homes, et cetera. Right. Banks could have been paid directly. There are so many common sense things they could have done. Now, I know people who are engineers, et cetera, and they're getting the, sub, the surplus money, even though they're working. I mean, you know, we really mm. needed to think about this is e- they try to do equality and equality is not equity. Because if Joe Blow makes $100,000 and he's still making $100,000 because he's able to work from home, why is he getting a check for $800 when Maria Gomez is a domestic worker, lost her job and has nothing? And she gets $300. So she can get $1,300 because the other person doesn't need it. I mean, I I think Mm. Trump's approach was so thoughtless that it really hurt a lot of people. Nothing to say about the incompetence and the thoughtlessness and the lack of thinking of the government and its focus on equality versus equity, I think was even more damaging to Latinos and African-Americans in this country. I think Biden is drawing on five decades of research and policy work to really do equity. He's scaring the heck out of people. But we know what to do. I mean, we need a living wage, $15, $17 an hour. Right. We need subsidized childcare. We need to equalize our educational investments. So right now, as you all know, and I think our viewers should know, education um, resources are channeled through real estate taxes. Now, this makes no sense whatsoever because we know that low-income Latino areas, low-income African-American areas, their real estate is low. So those schools get so little. So we have a built-in inequity in the way education is funded. So we need to have a national program through the U.S. Department of Education where all schools get an initial equal equitable investment, equal investment, we'll have to say. Um, But in some ways it's equitable because right now they're getting less than everybody else. So I think that's important. I think we definitely need a national health insurance program, regardless of how many people work in a business. And what we do know for Latinos, which I just finished a paper on this, and my dissertation was on this, that federally qualified community health centers are really important sources of ethnic and responsive health care for our people. And the last point I want to say, I've been thinking about this, is that we need to provide jobs that actually develop skills. We don't want to train people anymore to do McDonald's. We have to be able to train our individuals in computer skills, in nursing, why are we importing nurses when we could have our own nurses here? Um, so I think we, we know what to do. I mean, call centers. If we're worried about accents of Latinos here, of Mexican or South Americans, I am calling El Salvador and I am calling uh, Mexico. And they have accents, which are beautiful. 
but we also have a lot of people here who could use these jobs. So those are my equity measures, Rose. Uh, Ruth, before, um, I, I, we are both excited to um, hear about your research in terms of uh, academia and in particular oh, yes. higher ed. But um, uh, before Rose continues with her, her questions, um, I, 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 we talk about this a lot on our podcast about the importance of pushing back and not uh, uh taking information without analyzing it um, and uh, reading up on uh, issues that are taking place in our communities. And when you, you talk about some of these national strategies, which um, uh, the Republican Party has turned that around in so many ways to convince uh, Latinos to vote against what is in their best interest. Um, for example, support for small businesses, for example, mm -hmm. you know, uh, a national education program, um, healthcare access. And so uh, I think this is an opportunity for we as Latinos to begin to understand the importance of our educating ourselves about issues facing our country and not just to take information that's sort of given to us and believing it. We need to educate ourselves. Right. I, think, I think you shared that, Ruth, in terms of uh, some of our prior conversations as, in, as far as critical thinking mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what that means. Mm -hmm. yes. And there was one more thing I wanted to add, and that was, I really feel there's an opportunity as we move into green, uh, a green society mm -hmm. uh, for clean energy jobs for Latinos and training opportunities to get into these higher paying occupations that will um, move us toward a fossil free society. Um, so many, and here in Texas, we see it a lot. So many uh, um, Latinos are working in the fossil fuel industry and they believe this is the only um, way to, um, to provide for their families. And sure, there, are, there have been good wages, um, but we, um, the government and we as a society need to be able to work together to mm -hmm. ensure that people have access to high paying jobs as we transition away right. from our dependency on uh, fossil fuels. Yes, exactly. Agreed. So this forward thinking is really important about the U.S. population, I think, to improve and strengthen our democracy. Unfortunately, I think the last few years at the national level, there has been very limited thinking, critical thinking about how do we maintain and sustain um, our democracy and be inclusive of everyone, including those who contributed to the building of this country. And that's where my commitment lies. We have to include all, and that, does, and that has to include those who, who've been here for a long time and have contributed to the building of this country. So yes, we agree. Thank you, Ruth, for joining us today. 
and having this wonderful, wonderful conversation. Please join us as we continue our interview with Dr. Ruth Samprana. And thank you for joining us today. And please subscribe to our podcast on Buzzsprout, Apple, and Spotify. We look forward to having you join us next time here on Abuelas en Acción. Gracias. <laughs>